Hi, Foreign Correspondence listeners. This is your host, Jake Spring. Unfortunately, this week I was not able to get an episode ready in time. It's been a busy time with work, and I've been on a reporting trip the entire past week. So instead, here's some bonus content from my interview with Abdi Latif Dahir, the East Africa correspondent for the New York Times based in Nairobi, Kenya. Abdi spoke at length about his interview and article about Paul Recessa the man famously portrayed in the movie Hotel Rwanda. Now, years later, Paul Recessa has been arrested and is on trial back in Rwanda. Abdi takes us a little bit deeper than I was able to include in the original episode, telling us about his race to get the story out as he heard that competitors were hot on his heels. So here's that bit of our conversation that I wasn't able to include in the full episode for those that are interested. For clarity's sake, I'll include the parts about Paul Recessa that also appear in the full episode, and then that will flow directly into the additional content that was not included. He also talks about a special moment with some artists in Mogadishu, one of those pinch-me-I-can't-believe-it moments you get in journalism sometimes. I thought it was a really touching story, so I wanted to put it out in the world even if it didn't fit for the normal episode. That's it. Just a couple of answers that weren't able to fit in the full interview. If you like what you hear, please go back and listen to episode 54, which has the full interview with Abdi. I hope you enjoy, and please look for our next episode in a couple of weeks. Next, if we can talk about a story that you're proud of, it can be from any time in your career, but basically tell us a little bit about what it was about, um, how you got the idea, how you went about it, start to finish, any reaction, kind of, uh, yeah, the whole story behind the story, if there is one. Yeah, there are a few stories there, but I think I'll pick one story that I that that is still very recent and very fresh. And this is um, the story of the story I'd like to pick is the story of Paul Rosessa Bagina. He is the character behind the the movie Hotel Rwanda. Uh-huh. So Paul Rosessa Bagina was a hotelier. He was managing this prominent hotel in Kigali, Rwanda, when the genocide happened there in 1994 and he's credited with you know saving the lives of more than 1,200 people majority of them Tutsis who were being attacked and and haunted during the bloodshed that happened in 1994 so Mm -hmm. I remember like you know Paul Rosasabagina like I, I remember watching that film in Mogadishu with my parents and like I remember from a young age when, like, you know, the genocide was unfolding and we still lived in Kenya. And one of the things that my mother used to do always is to buy the copies of the newspaper every morning. So I remember, like, the Daily Nation and the Standard, like, would just be like, you know, we'll talk about, like, you know, the war in Somalia, but then we always, like, have, like, stuff about, like, Rwanda and what was going on at the time. And so last year, late August we get the news that Paul Rosessabagina has been arrested in Kigali and that he's facing charges including terrorism and uh, murder and arson. And um, I instantly knew that this was going to be a very important story for us to cover and it's a very important story for us to know how this man who became a Belgian citizen and was living in the United States, how he came to Kigali. So 
and because at the time he had also for years at the time had developed into a critic of the government of, of President Paul Kagame. So yeah, and instantly sort of like wrote that quick story that day and then the next day sort of like followed up with interviews with his daughter and where the last time they had heard, you know, their dad was and it turns out that the last time they heard about him he had flown from San Antonio, Texas, got on a flight from Chicago again, landed in Dubai and that's the last they heard of him and so I immediately started like talking to people from the Rwandan government and I was just like, is there any chance we could talk to him, we need to understand how this happened, how this unfolded, could you talk to us? And uh, got on a flight to Kigali without knowing that, you know, whether we were going to be allowed to like go into the room with him or talk to him or even see him. And um, sure. so I went to Kigali and uh, immediately started like saying like, you know, is there any chance we could see him? Is there any chance we could talk to him? And while we were waiting for that, I remember that weekend, what we did is that Paul was being accused of um, creating a group that had undertaken attacks in southern Rwanda, so close to the border with Burundi. So that weekend, we drove across the country, went to some of these villages and, and towns, and like spoke to the people in those villages about you know, what had happened and like documented their stories. And then got back to Kigali um, right on time for the, for the first time when he was actually going to be arraigned in court. So on September 14th last year, which is actually my birthday, hmm. I was the first person to get into the courtroom and like literally see him there, sitting there with his lawyer. And he was like, oh yeah, like this is the closest anybody has been to him, like at least with the press since, you know, he has actually been detained. And it was, it was very exhilarating to be there and like just to be able to witness that as a journalist, right? Particularly because the story was already drawing a lot of international attention around how did he get there. A few days before I had gotten to Kigali, President Paul Kagame had spoken on television and, and he had he talked about like, you know, what was going on. And, and I had gotten into like the live television interview and like sort of like asked him the first question. I was like, how did you get him there? How are we sure that he's going to be receiving justice or a fair trial? And so because of the responses that happened that night and when, you know, the president was like, this was a flawless operation. He brought himself here, you know, been working on this for years. There was a lot of international attention around how that happened. So... Mm -hmm. And then a day later, after the trial, which was on a Monday, and I think on a Tuesday, his lawyers at the time, which were government-appointed lawyers that the family later on changed, gave me a call and they're like, you know, you can come and see him and you can come to the headquarters of the Rwanda Investigation Bureau and you're going to be able to like meet with him and talk with him. And I didn't believe that that was going to pan out up until like, you know, we went there and like we parked the car and like walked across the parking lot and then we were introducing you know were brought into this room and he was sitting right there and it was very interesting because he seemed very calm and he was like asked from about my name and it was like pretty much like a like the hotel manager that he was was just like I want to get your name right like I need you to say how it's written and how it's said and I was like you know I just want you to know that 
I, w- I just want to know that you're the one doing this out of your own volition and that you're not being coerced to do anything. It's like, no, 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 I want to do this interview. And, and, and yeah, we did get that interview. And and then, of course, the other great interviews that we, I did was sort of like also getting the other side of the story, which was from the government now talking to like the country's chief spy and the country's justice minister and sort of like asking them questions, had questions about how do you justify this and how do you make sure that... Uh, is this legal? Are you sure this is not kidnapping? Um, mm-hmm. How are we sure that he's not going to be tortured? He's going to be receiving fair trial? So that was also like a, a great get, uh, you know, as a journalist, particularly when it's that sort of like um, type of a story, like it's more or less like when it's that tricky. Sometimes like you're only getting the side of the story from the government or you're getting the side of the story from the the victims or you're getting the side of the story from the people who are being accused of perpetrating this violence. But this was a story where we were sort of like able to see all the dimensions and all the sort of like angles of the story. And of course, like working with my colleagues who are reporting in Belgium and like all across the United States and like trying to dig into what had happened in, in the other parts of the world, it sort of like birthed this beautiful narrative that we later on put together around what had happened who is Paul Rosas Bagina? Because the last time everybody heard about him, right, was just like this very famous uh, hero who later on became a dissident. So putting together that story, I think it, which is a story that continues to be, uh, and because he's on trial and, and he's called the trial very unfair and has like refused to even participate. But, um, you know, the trial is now drawing to a close and there might be a judgment anytime soon in the coming months. And it's sort of like drawn a lot of controversy and uh, a lot of condemnation from the European Union, from the United States Congress. So it's a story that is still alive in many ways, but I think it's a story that I'm really proud of how we initially were able to be like the authoritative outlet that that told this and, and, and was like be able to get into the room with him and ask him, so how did you get here? And is the government right in what's in what they're accusing you of? And how are you and just being able to like just sit there and say like how is your health? How are you doing? And so yeah, it's it, it, it's a fascinating story, right? Like and it's a brought uh, a lot of international attention, and I'm very glad that we continue to be in many ways the, the leading publication that's sort of like keeping the story alive and, and and talking about it and writing about it and trying to get the nuances of it all because there's a lot of nuance and tension, right, that exists, particularly when you talk about the genocide and its memory and its history in the context of the uh, of Rwanda today. Mm-hmm. And just so I understand the context, correct, you, you interviewed him in the courthouse somewhere or where, where exactly did you interview him? So, so I no, I in the courthouse, uh, that was like the, a whole day scenario, but I interviewed Paul Rosasimbagina the next day, the day after his first trial, at the headquarters of the Rwanda Investigation Bureau. So we did have uh, his two government-appointed lawyers sitting in the room, and we did have some government officials sitting in the room. So he was definitely not fully speaking freely, like he was under duress, and uh, there was a camera right behind him, like a CCTV camera right on top of him. He was in this room, and... uh, of course, like everything he said was being recorded, and like the government officials were in the room also like had took their iPhones out and like took photos of him and I sitting opposite each other. I also like just took out my phones uh, and just put them on the table so that they could record. And then the government official also like brought his iPhone and like 
put it right next to mine and started recording at the same time. So it was it was a very tense uh, whatever. And I knew that in many ways that he wasn't going to say a lot of things that he might have been able to say, like if he was particularly not in the room with, with government officials. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a tense situation, knowing your interview is under a microscope as you're doing it. And and then I was just curious, since since this is a fast-moving, competitive story, you said you kind of weave these different elements into a narrative, both uh, the interview with Paul and the interview with the justice uh, minister or whatever his position mm-hmm. was. I mean, were you having to write many different stories on this? Was there an element of, okay, part of this we have to get out right away, or were you able to kind of hold back and write the one big definitive piece? That's a great question. So we definitely wanted to do one big definitive piece, and that's what we were working towards. So particularly with like my colleagues in Brussels talking, trying to get this uh, private jet uh, airline based in Greece that apparently had delivered him to, to Rwanda, and also sort of like trying to talk to the family members and trying to talk to like people like the actor Don Cheadle and like the, the film director Terry George who are like had known him and like had interacted with him in the past. So we definitely wanted to do one definitive piece where all of this was going to end up. And uh, at just a day before, and the Rwandan government, we were the only ones who got into the room and I was like, hey, we need a span of like 72 hours or something like that so that at least we could put something together so we kind of sort of like had an agreement and an embargo on this but then a day before that and this is probably the first time I'm sharing this publicly but a day before that is I get a call from some of the family members asking me questions and more or less like none of them knew that I had gone to actually Rwanda and had come out but they were like hey we hear you spoke to him and that other publications also have spoken to him and that interviews are about to come out and I was like I didn't confirm or deny or say anything about whether I had met with him, but I was like, oh, that's interesting. Which are these other publications that I've interviewed? They're like, no, 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 we hear the Washington Post has spoken to him and two other local publications have spoken to him. And and we had sort of like been debating those 72 hours whether to just like quickly write something small. So we had like a 700, 800 word piece that says he's given an, an interview. He says this is how he got here. He thought that he was getting on a private jet that was going to deliver him to Burundi, where he was going to speak to some local churches and not actually go to Rwanda. So we we had had like an 800 word story that I was on standby. And so I get that, this call, random call, like 7 p.m. And so I call my editor and my editor was just like, okay, what are we going to do? So we all put our heads together and was like, this is bad that our scoop is out and that some people know about it. So how about we just put out the 800 word story? And that's what we did. We quickly edited it out and it was put out. And then everybody started talking about, aha, okay, so he's actually spoken to the New York Times. And that now, again, pushed us to be like, let's get in the big piece out. So by, I think that went out late on Thursday, at least my East African time, the short story about his jailhouse interview that I wrote. And then the big piece went out late on Friday. So it was like, 
before anybody delivers this other big punch or whatever else they're working on that we just don't know. Let's put out our big piece. So we, we, we work towards that too. And I mean, uh, did, was the post publishing immediately too once? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. So in the end, it ended up not being quite as competitive as you thought. Exactly. But it was so nerve-wracking. And, and I was just like, I was at for a while even of the view of just like, you know what, let's just keep going on with our big piece. But then I was just also like, I would hate it if somebody else... <laughs> I had put out a story that said, um, you know, we had interviewed him and we had talked to him and, and I was just like very concerned about that. But I was just like, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it worked out well, but um, it, it was also just like a couple of hours of just being nerve wracking and just being like, who are these other people who had talked to him and, 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 and what type of interview was that going to be? Because I had like an hour long interview with him. And I had asked him all sorts of things. But yeah, it was just like, you know, it turned out well at the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had the same thing happen to me just last year. I was on some story about like illegal wood exports and I was talking to some source and she dropped something about, oh, so, you know, so other people are looking into this. And, uh, you know, suddenly I was like, it, it was the intercept. And suddenly I was like, this story has to go now, like to my editors. And we <laughs> rush it together and we set it up to go overnight. I don't know. The piece comes out at five or six in the morning. And uh, the intercept obviously did the exact same thing. Theirs came out at like two or three in the morning. You know, not times people are oh. reading, but like... Uh, <laughs> In the end, it turned out fine. You know, my piece led on a different piece of information. I had more information than they did and things like that. But it's, I know that feeling of, like, we got to get this out now. This could, you know, this other thing could completely ruin it. It's uh, nerve-wracking for sure. It is. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story and interesting story behind the story. I'll find a link to this story and I'll put up a link and other links to other stories we talked about in the show notes. So listeners should go check that out Thank you. after they listen to this interview. This next question, it's kind of hard to sum up, but it's basically, you know, uh, I can't believe this is my job or I can't believe this is my life moment that has happened to you because of your work in journalism. So either the coolest or weirdest or, funniest situation you've been in. It can be serious. It can be funny. Um, it can be whatever, really. But just like, I really can't believe that this is my job to do this kind of moment. Again, I'll, I'll draw you back to like to Somalia because I, I draw a lot of memories from that and, and interested in that. One of the things that I, I think about now quickly is just in late December 2012, I was in Somalia, like, you know, like the years ending and all that. And I, at the time, went into the city to do other stories. But then somebody, while I was sitting at a coffee shop, was like, oh, yeah, by the way, like, there are a bunch of artists who've like, you know, now that sort of like the war is coming to a close and, and the city sort of like showing some life artists are more and more like coming out and actually doing some serious painting and I was like oh this is interesting like so you know call a few people turns out like the you know they, they use as a studio this garage and some house like you know which was like very close to the hotel I was staying in so I went there 
knocked the door and was just like, hey, what's up? Like, you know, I hear this, whatever. And I was like, you know, because of course, like, it's a lot of tension. You can't just like knock at people's homes. Like everybody, and the security guy that was a gun was like, we're all suspicious. I'm like, listen, I'm a journalist. Here's my credentials. I'm carrying nothing. I have a notebook. Like, I and I hear that, you know, that people like painting in there and like, he was like, he was like, no, I don't think I should let you in. But and I was just like, you know, just tell them that, you know, this journalist out there, that he's my business card. They can call me anytime. And and one of the artists there called me later on and was like, you know, so what's your name? And like asked me questions and like, you know, I think got a bit relaxed after like I started explaining what I do and the fact that I had lived in the city and like I was staying at the nearby hotel. I was like, you can even come over, guys, if you want. Like we can have coffee here. And so invited me over the next day, which was basically, uh, I think, December 31st, which was the last day of the year. And um, they were painting this big sort of like, he, at least he was painting this big sort of like painting that was going to go up at this junction, important junction called Kilometer 4 in Mogadishu. And it was sort of like a message. It was like... 2012, let it mark, like, you know, the last time that, you know, the Somalis fight each other. Let's, you know, looking for a message of hope, the message of unity. And he was sort of like very emotional about it. And I remember sitting there the whole day in the studio while they just talked about their experiences and what they went through through the war and the fact that they couldn't paint and the fact that they couldn't do anything. And, and you know, a lot of them were like, you know, because of medical uh, bills, I think there are a lot of medical bills that they couldn't pay. And, and how like this was sort of like the fact that even you know I think an NGO had commissioned that after seeing that you know that they were sort of like slowly coming back to force and like you know organizing themselves so and they you know were telling me about the 70s and the 80s and how they used to party and like the type of Mogadishu was so different and the bars and like how people were very liberal and the times that they had gone to the Soviet Union for training or like gone to Italy for like education. And it was like from a completely different era. And I'm just like, you know, it was such a beautiful moment. I was just like, I am sitting at this beautiful sort of like intersection of like the past connecting to the future, this present moment at the turn of the year, you know, was was such a... Yeah, it was it was really like very emotional in that because many times like you you just you're able to sort like as a kid I was just like almost always like just exhausted by the war in the city and like all the stuff that you would see but then I at that moment I sort of like saw myself like and saw this picture of like you know the larger picture of like what the city and the country was like and where a better future might look like for it and how like you know these old men had not given up that hope and I was sitting there up until like you know the guys came out and like they took the painting out and like I went on that same truck and like we went to this place and like it was put up and like all of a sudden there was a crowd that gathered and it was like around 5 6 p.m the sun was setting and it was beautiful and it was like a breeze and it was like it was a beautiful moment and I just couldn't believe that I was there to like live it all And that's partly, honestly, like I think about moments like that and it's one of the reasons why like a large part of the journalism that I do is driven and guided by hope. And it's like, I'm just like almost always like we can't despair from like telling the stories. We can't despair from like writing that next piece because, you know, there are a lot of people who 
are not able to experience what I've just experienced. And the fact that they're going to be able to read about this story is is really important. And I wrote a, a piece about it for the Africa Report magazine. And then, interesting enough, somebody who was sitting in Italy, who was connected to this art gallery in Venice, a Somali-Italian, read that piece, reached out to me, was like, I want to contact these artists. I want to do like an entire book about... Uh, artist's work in Mogadishu and in across Somalia and he flew here he got a big grant went to Mogadishu was able to pay like dozens of like artists to like each paint um, one painting that represented you know their work and, and represented Somalia and then that spawned a book called Somalia Out of Hope that came out like I think a year or two later and that was both in English and translated into Italian. And some of those uh, paintings, I think, even went all the way to Italy and was showed uh, up in Venice. So it was great. It's one of those things that I really think about. I'm just like, I'm so lucky to have been there. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story. And very interesting how, you know, it ends with, you know, somebody picking it up and then, you know, running further with it. That's really great. Mm-hmm. 